0: Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. Do you want to dive deeper into this story? Do you want to get episodes early and listen without ads? Well, you get all of that and more for as little as $5 a month. Go to dakotaspotlight.com and check out Spotlight Plus. This is Dakota Spotlight Season 3, The House on Sweet and 7th, a production of Forum Communications. I'm James Walner. This podcast contains content that some may find disturbing. Discretion is advised. On Saturday morning at 8.45 a.m., Detective Bob Haas had a tough assignment. He was headed to attend the autopsies of Gordon and Barbara Erickstead. They're not pleasant things to be at, but they have a purpose and they fulfill
1: a need that we we have. Um, We had some concerns about the broken knife and stuff, and... The knife that was broken, the blade snapped in half. But if we look at the the end that had the the point on it, we noticed that there was a notch missing out of that knife. And we didn't know what happened to that. Well, during the autopsy of Mr. Ericstead, the notch was located in the back of his skull. Doctor, I think it was Dr. Mazzell at the time was a coroner. He took it out and he placed it on the knife that was missing the knot of the piece, and it fit perfectly,
0: so we knew at that time that it answered that question for us. Barbara was stabbed ten times around her head and neck area, most of these deep incisions. She was also stabbed nine times in her back and three times in her arms. Gordon had been stabbed thirteen times around his head and neck, eight times in his arms, once in his right shoulder, and once in the chest. Neither victim had any trace of alcohol, or illegal drugs, in their system. While the autopsy was taking place, back at the police department, it was all hands on deck that weekend. Phone calls and tips were streaming in, additional interviews were conducted, and officers were working on tracking the two suspects. The Ericsteds' credit cards were missing. Detective Roger Becker was assigned to call the Visa Credit Card Company and Amoco Credit to see if they could get a list of recent charges. At 9.18 a.m., Detective Gary Malo took a call. A Mrs. Knutsen was on the line. She said her son had been told by some other kid that he had been told by Robert and Brian that, quote, something big was going to happen, unquote and calls kept coming in. A clerk at Pony Express gas station had seen the pictures of the fugitives on the news. She called in to say that she remembered Brian and Robert coming into the gas station on Wednesday. Then, Pam Werner from East Sweet Avenue came back into the police station, adamant that her daughter Amy needed to be put in the psych ward. Three officers went with Pam to East Sweet Avenue to retrieve her daughter. The state's attorney's office had decided to cite Ryan Werner and his sister Amy, along with Misty Jones, for hindering a law enforcement investigation. Teresa Porter of the Police Youth Bureau was called in to help with all of this, and she was in for a frustrating day. It was a tedious process, but Amy was ultimately entered into the psych ward. But then, just two hours later, her mother Pam checked her out again, now claiming everything was just fine. Teresa Porter spoke with Pam Werner and asked her why she had done this. Pam told her that Amy promised that she was fine. Teresa Porter then questioned Pam about her coming into the police department the night before at 4 a.m., fearing for her own life. Was that no longer a problem? Pam's response was, Yeah, but I have my boyfriend here with me. When Ryan Werner was informed that he would be sighted, he became somewhat violent and was handcuffed. Several officers assisted in getting Ryan restrained and then finally calmed down. Teresa Porter also assisted with issuing a citation to Misty Jones. Aside from these charges for hindering an investigation, neither Misty Jones or Ryan Werner or anyone other than Brian Erickstead and Robert Lawrence were ever charged for anything related to these homicides. Another interview performed that weekend was a second interview with 17-year-old Rick Storhog, Misty Jones' boyfriend and Brian Eriksdod's longtime friend. This interview was conducted by Detective Steve Lundeen. Rick Storhog's parents were also present. When watching or listening to this interview, it's apparent that Detective Lundeen is growing a little weary of all the games these teenagers are playing. Sure, some of that might be fatigue, but it seems more likely that his weariness just mirrors the frustration that the rest of the team is feeling. Of course, at the time, nobody knew that in a few months they would still be shaking their heads, baffled by the monumental level of disrespect that some of these young people offered the victims and their families. Okay,
2: um, just to get started, like I was telling your dad, um, At this point right
0: now, you're still not in any trouble. Okay. Rick Storhog proves to be one of the most frustrating of witnesses. Watching the video, his whole demeanor and body language pretty much just screams, I really can't be bothered with any of this. He sits slouched in his chair, baseball cap turned around backwards. His right elbow rests on the arm of his chair, and he sometimes props his cheek against his open palm as if he's simply bored by it all. Detective Lundeen must repeatedly remind Rick that they are talking about a double homicide and that a double homicide is a very serious thing.
2: I mean, you know how serious this is, what we're dealing with now, okay? This isn't a car break-in, this isn't a a burglary or anything like that. There's two people dead, and I am not going to tolerate being lied to if you have some more information, okay? And I know Mm -hmm. you do, all right? So I want you to be honest with me tell me exactly what you know, because even if you didn't know it the last time I talked to you, I know that all you guys have been talking about this together. <laughs> we need to get to the bottom of what information you know, not only for the conclusion of the investigation. I'm
3: still a little bit uncertain about uh, Misty's boyfriend, Rick, uh, Rick's door and his role. He had a lot of information. And uh, I remember when he was being interviewed, he would never tell who told him what.
2: You know, number one, I can respect your loyalty to each other. And, you know, it's nice that you guys are that close friends, but, you know, your whole group is pretty tight. But I wish I could get into your guys' heads that this is something far more serious than loyalty to friends, okay? Mm. You know, and I, I just wish you guys could understand that know whoever was responsible they have to take responsibility for it okay and it's not fair that you guys all have to carry around this burden of knowing what happened and trying to protect each other and stuff like that because in the end it's gonna backfire on everybody
3: but it seemed like he knew details that only he could know if he was there if he'd been there if he had participated in some way
2: I need you to remember what you heard, okay, and I need you to remember who you heard it from and what they said because this isn't like any everyday conversation. You know, I just can't buy that you can't remember what you've heard yet. Okay, well, I've heard from who? No. You know I remember like I mean, what I heard. This
3: he claims to have been told bits and pieces of information from half a dozen sources or more.
2: This is never gonna to happen to you in your lifetime again, that mm-hmm. somebody you know is involved in Killing their parents, but right. it's like I don't remember who told me stuff. You know, I know somebody told me that Ryan was there. I don't remember who it was. It could have been DJ. It could have been Buddy. It could have been Christie. It could have been Candy. It could have been Amy. It could have been Michelle. God only knows who it was. because had talked to everybody.
3: But he's he's one I never really um, felt we got the full truth out of. Him.
0: Another thing Rick Storhog never seemed to be able to remember was anyone's last name. Again, it seemed he really just couldn't be bothered by it all.
2: Bill, Bill, the one Okay. You don't know his last name yet? No, I don't really pay attention to the last name. What's Bill's last name? I don't know. I don't really know anybody's last name. I don't know his last name. I don't really know anybody's last name.
0: At one point, Rick Storhog asks the detective if he should tell him that Santa Claus murdered the Eric Stons, if that's what he's heard.
2: Okay, so you let the judge. You want to hear everything? You let the judge decide what's hearsay and what isn't. Yeah. Right? I'm telling you, the state's attorney isn't playing games with this. And if you think they are, just ask some of your friends because some of them have already been charged. Yeah. All right? Well, yeah. because this is
4: a double homicide this is not something that's just a... well then they're in Canada and they're in Mexico
2: I've heard both of those so far well first <laughs> let's cover what happened okay what you've heard, heard what happened at the Eric death house all right wow. start from the beginning back to Wednesday night okay Wednesday night, like what were you guys doing cool. on Wednesday night
0: Detective Lundeen wouldn't quite get the full story from Rick about what happened Wednesday night and Thursday but perhaps we should look at that now. The timeline leading up to the murders is a fuzzy timeline. The case files and evidence compiled by Sergeant Haas and others consist of five indexed spiral binders and many hours of recorded interviews. It's packed with documentation and facts. I've read every single page of this, and despite that, parts of the timeline are difficult to understand. Many of those associated with the house on East Sweet Avenue resisted cooperating with the police and offered them only fragments of information. The only way to assemble the timeline from Wednesday afternoon through the murders and all through the following day was to reassemble it from those partial pieces of information, like pieces of a puzzle. And, as Lloyd Halverson suggested to me, it wasn't an easy chore.
3: It's not a 500-piece puzzle this is a puzzle with thousands of pieces.
0: If there were cliques within this group of kids, it's not very evident. Everyone hung out with everyone at different times. It seemed that no four people were ever in the same car twice in a row. Don't worry if you don't follow every single step in this timeline, especially the earlier part of Wednesday, September 16th. You will understand the most important parts, and really, it doesn't really matter. For example, who went to McDonald's. If it was Amy and Rick and Dave, or if it was Amy and Robert and a guy named DJ and his brother Buddy and some guy named Bill. It doesn't really matter. Nevertheless, I want to share some of those events with you too, because it simply gives us some insight, a sneak peek into their daily lives and what was happening just a few hours before the Eriksdads were killed. Hi again, it's me, James. I just want to tell you about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to the Dakota Spotlight podcast that allows you to listen to these same episodes without ads, and you get access to them before anyone else. Your subscription will also unlock access to exclusive episodes, the Spotlight Plus newsletter, videos, pictures, documents, and more. All at the same time, you will be supporting me and Dakota Spotlight. Please check out Spotlight Plus by going to dakotaspotlight.com. Thank you for your support.
5: 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is
1: my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act. Conning the Con.
0: It's Wednesday, mid to late afternoon, about 12 hours before the murders. Six of the guys associated with the house on East Sweden decide to get a 30-pack of beer from a liquor store in Mandan and then go swimming in the Hart River at a place they call the Rapids. where you go swimming? I didn't swim, but everybody else
4: did. It was down in the Rapids, you know, right by YCC, a little swimming spot I'm drinking, whatever, where everybody parties at.
0: This is the voice of David Pankowski, one of the two runaways staying at the house at the time. He's being interviewed by Teresa Porter and Detective Steve Siseski, just a few days after the homicides.
4: It was me, Robert, Brian, um, Rick, and uh, Buddy and DJ, the brothers. So you guys all left together in one vehicle to call No, we were in two vehicles, Rick's car and Buddy's.
0: After some drinking and swimming, they leave the river in two cars at about 6.45 p.m.
4: We went to West Central and to pick up Misty's car.
0: They need to borrow Misty's little red car because that night, a whole bunch of them have a plan to crash Misty's Alcoholic Anonymous meeting at 8 p.m. They think it'll be extra fun to be drunk when they show up. There's so many people going, they need three cars, so they need to borrow Misty's. Who picked that up there?
4: Who was drunk? Um, Robert. that been prearranged. Be like Misty or something
0: get
4: her car, and I don't know why, to drive to the AA meeting, I guess, because there's so many
0: people going. While Robert Lawrence picks up Misty's car, Rick Storhog takes Brian Ericsted and his girlfriend Amy Werner down to the Ericsted residence to pick up some of Brian's belongings. Brian is moving in with Amy into her downstairs bedroom on East Sweet Avenue. As they're leaving the home on Laredo Drive, Brian's parents show up, and his mother Barbara sends them off with a plate of cookies. About seven hours later, she will be killed.
2: You guys were at Brian's house around 7.45 or 7.30? Yeah, 30
4: 7.30, because AA started at 8. Okay. So like 7.30, 7.45. I left at
0: 7.45. After that, they all drive in three cars to Misty's Alcoholic Anonymous meeting.
4: Rick had a carload. They had a carload. Bill went. Everybody, I can't remember exactly who went, but a lot of people went.
0: But three of them don't go inside.
4: It was me and that Mike kid and Michelle. We went to this girl's house to visit
0: while they were in there. And then... Dave is on the run, after all, and doesn't want to be seen. Instead, they go to visit a friend of Michelle's who's pregnant. They want to see if she's had her baby yet.
4: Okay, you guys didn't go to the AAP. No, not me, Mike, or Michelle.
0: Everyone else goes into the 8 p.m. AA meeting, evidently while intoxicated.
2: Why did they do this? Just They thought it would be a funny thing to do,
4: is get drunk and go to a-
0: during that AA meeting, Robert Lawrence decides it would be funny to pretend he's illiterate and cause a little ruckus, at which point the crew from East Sweet Avenue all leave, everyone except Misty, who's required to be there by law.
4: Supposedly, they came around to him when he was supposed to read out of the book, uh, and he said, no, I can't read. And he said he was embarrassed or something and left, and then everybody got a bathroom him and left.
0: I don't know if Robert Lawrence had any difficulty reading at the time, but he was not illiterate. I have read many letters he wrote to Misty and others while he was in jail awaiting trial. In a later episode, we'll take a look at some of those somewhat bizarre letters. After the AA meeting, the gang splits up into three groups. Some go back to the house, while others commit small crimes. Just another day in the capital city of Bismarck, North Dakota. Just before 9 p.m., runaway Dave, Robert Lawrence, a kid named Buddy, and possibly a fourth person, go to J.C. Penney's. The crew have been shoplifting for weeks and have a simple plan in place. You walk in, pick up some clothes, and pretty much head straight to the register and say you want to return them. Then, you keep the cash. Somehow, they manage this without a receipt. Okay, first I went
4: in there and I grabbed a pair of Arizonas and I took them up and I got my
0: money back. On the way out, Dave steals a shirt
4: that was the uh, boss
2: shirt or sweater you
4: that everybody
2: wore you were talking about that misty wore later no
4: misty didn't wear that she wore my boss sorry, shirt yeah caddy hat on later and then ryan wore it the next day yeah
0: none of these three kids are siblings but they share clothing nevertheless like one big happy family it's now 9 p.m about six hours before the crime after shoplifting someone needs to pick up misty who's without her car and is just finishing up at the AA meeting. This was possibly Dave and Robert when they hit a liquor store.
4: It was a, there was a lot of alcohol that eh? night. More than three trips to get alcohol.
0: Dave has money now, after shoplifting. Misty has money, too. At some point, she has Robert buy three cases of beer. Then they all head back to the mothership, the house on East Suite. But the crew are still not done running around for the evening.
4: Me, Michelle, Rick, and Buddy went to McDonald's. That's important. Mm-hmm. We got food. I bought them food.
0: Dave Pankowski pays at McDonald's with his shoplifting money, then back to Sweet Avenue. Five hours before the crime, Rick Storhog leaves East Sweet again, this time with his girlfriend Misty and Brian and Robert. They take Misty's car to get Tylenol for Michelle Werner, who has a headache. Brian Erickstead walks into the Kirkwood Amico gas station and shoplifts the Tylenol. Finally, sometime around 10.30 p.m., the crews start to settle down a bit. Less driving around, more drinking, more smoking. Dave the runaway and Candy sit outdoors on a couch by the garage next to A&B parking lot. They're enjoying the stars and a last hint of summer. The others are downstairs in Ryan's big bedroom, or Amy's bedroom, or Michelle's bedroom. Four hours before the crime, Brian and Robert want some marijuana. They go over to a bar named Buck's to try to score some. They come back empty-handed. Their friend Buddy scores them a quarter ounce of weed instead. They can pay him back another day, he says. Buddy, Robert and Brian smoke the marijuana in Michelle's bedroom. The little house on the corner of Sweet and Seventh is oozing in its comfort zone now, purring along warm, soft, and fuzzy, its inhabitants comfortably numb. This is business as usual here, after dark, on a school night, with parents and adults just upstairs. One thing is a little different, though. Brian and Robert are being secretive. They hole up in Michelle's bedroom with Rick Storhog and ask to be left alone. This is not business as usual. All these friends are like family, after all. They share so much. They share beds and cars. They share beer and clothing. Secrets are not part of the arrangement. Michelle and Amy's brother Ryan feels left out and rejected. He retreats to his bedroom where he sits alone and sulks. At some point, Robert Lawrence approaches Ryan and asks him what's wrong. This is Ryan Werner, again, being interviewed by the police. For late, late Wednesday night,
3: early Thursday morning, we started talking about it. Um, is that in your room? No, they were, um, I was in my
2: room, sitting there, because I was thinking about something, and I was just thinking because I was bored, sitting on the corner of my bed, and they were talking for, what, 20 minutes, and then I was dozing off, kind of, and then well, wow, goes, what's wrong with you? I do I'm doing nothing. I'm just tired and bored. He's like, well, I'm gonna tell you something. I don't want you to get in trouble for it. I'm like, what? He's like, we're gonna kill Brian's parents tonight. And then I was just sat there. I'm like, yeah, right. You guys are drunk.
0: According to Ryan Werner, Brian Ericsted's motive is
2: money. Yeah, he said that if, if he killed his parents, that he could, that he'd get the house. He'd get life insurance for both of them. You get the lake cabin and you get two vehicles.
0: Robert Lawrence had had a different motive to kill, apparently, for some time. He just wanted to know what it would feel like to kill someone.
4: Robert, though, did he ever, when you were with him, did he ever express or say something to the effect that he would kill someone? Yeah, he said he always wanted to know how it felt to kill somebody. Okay. He said he always wanted to kill somebody after me. Well, what would be, I mean, how would this come up? That he'd say it?
1: Yeah.
4: He'd, I don't know, he'd be, he'd see like an Indian or a black guy or something, because I just wonder, I just wonder how it feels to kill somebody,
2: because I am might kill somebody one of these days.
0: Okay. If you didn't quite catch that, Ryan said, when Robert would see an Indian or a black guy, he would say, I just wonder what it would feel like to kill someone. I'm going to kill someone one of these days.
5: Things that I can remember, I know that um, there was a lot of uh, prejudice
0: This is Carol Lander speaking about Robert and Brian. She was one of the runaways, and she was there at the house on Sweet Avenue on the night of the murders. She slept in Ryan's room on a hide bed She spoke with me over the phone from federal prison, where she is currently serving 10 years for drug-related crimes. She prefers to be called Cassie. And we'll get back to the events of Wednesday night in just a moment. In fact, Cassie will help us with that, too.
5: They didn't like people of color or anything like that, and they talked about it a lot. And I I was always uncomfortable. Uh, Robert, he had this very strong personality. I don't quite know what other way to describe him. Like, it was very... To me, he was scary. Like, I didn't like him. There was something about him that just gave me the chills or the creepy crawlies or stuff like that. So I just didn't, I didn't care for him, but it seemed like, you know, everybody was just kind of drawn to him, and maybe it was because he was older than all of us. Like, he was the oldest one there. All of us were 17, 18, 19, like, in that age range. So it was kind of weird that, you know, he's 27 and hanging out with all of us buying alcohol, whatever, you know, like, let's do this, let's do that. It was, like, his idea for a lot of things, and so everybody just kind of followed along.
0: Cassie also remembers Robert randomly assaulting a black man on Main Street in Bismarck. This assault took place on the Sunday before the murders. Robert injured his hand during this assault and went to the hospital.
5: We were driving up and down Main Street in Bismarck, and there happened to be a black guy stand in there and they were, he started cussing at him we were following there was a bunch of us girls in a car that was following this and they pulled around the corner and the guy was walking down that way and robert jumped out and started beating the crap out of this guy and i just remember everybody screaming and hollering and um his girlfriend going to try to pull him off and him saying, you guys leave, you guys leave, and everybody getting in the vehicle and leaving. And I just remember looking out the back window and just being scared because he was still there. And I was like, oh my God. And the guy was bloody, and it was just, it was terrible. But my stomach was so sick that I couldn't do anything. Yeah, and I was, I was frightened.
0: I asked Cassie to share her memories of that evening, September 16, 1998, in the little house on East Suite.
5: Well, we were all partying, everybody was having a good time, and then as the time went on, it was like getting to be the middle of the night, but I remember off and on, Brian and Robert, like, being secretive, and it was kind of weird, because they, like, kept wandering off, and then Michelle and Amy, who who is their girlfriends, were like, what is going on? What are they talking about? What's happening? And then it was like everybody forgot, because we were just having fun, and, you know, everybody was just kind of moving around, and... I got pretty, pretty, pretty drunk, and I was high, and I was, I just wanted to go to bed, <laughs> and I remember wanting to go to sleep, and they were like, well, just go sleep on the pull-out couch. So, and that was in Ryan's room, and I went in there and pulled the couch out, and wanting to go to sleep. But everybody, there was still no other people up, and then there was people that were coming to bed about the same time I was, and you know, it was kind of just everybody was winding down because we were all wasted. <laughs>
0: About three hours before the murders, at around midnight, something interesting happens. Rick Storhog tells his girlfriend Misty and the others that he will be right back. He says he's just going to take their friend DJ home, and then he'll be right back. He doesn't come back, though. He goes home instead. And, as you will see later, Misty, Brian, and Robert will go looking for Rick. They even knock on his bedroom window at his house and leave him a note at 2.30 a.m., Rick Storehog does not come out to talk to them, which is probably one of the wisest decisions he ever made. Still to come on future episodes of Dakota Spotlight Season 3, The House on Sweet and Seventh.
3: She was certain that they were coming back for Amy and Michelle to take them to go with them.
4: We ended up over at
1: that house on Sweet Avenue.
5: After we drove over to this house, everybody just piled out There was like a bunch of people getting out
1: the license plate and runs it through NCIC and it comes back as a hit that the two people in the pickup are wanted for murder.
4: Right by the doorway to the hall and right between Ryan's back in his bed and the doorway of the hall. That's where she told me. I mean, it was, there were some adults there and you know, we all stayed downstairs.
1: It's like nothing ever happened. He's just normal as can be after that.
2: If necessary, would you uh, be willing to testify
4: in court about I used to be Misty Jones, but I'm not that girl anymore.
0: The House on Sweet and Seventh is hosted and reported by me, James Walner, and is a production of Forum Communications Company. Don't miss the accompanying mini-documentary, The House on Sweet and Seventh, which will be available on any North Dakota Forum Communications website. That's the Grand Forks Herald, the Jamestown Sun, the Dickinson Press, and inform.com. Again, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. Thank you for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.